the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to episode 9 of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean and joined as always by Paul Gosling. Hi Jared. Hi Paul. So this is a podcast that is forward focused. It's looking at the issues that we need to address collectively here in Northern Ireland and we're doing this in a way we want to broaden a conversation, create a safe space for the the difficult conversations, I feel like. And the conversation that you had for this episode was with Peter Sheridan. Absolutely. And Peter's a very interesting person because he's Chief Executive of Corporation Ireland, which is a peace-building organisation for mm-hmm. the North. But also, of course, he is a former senior officer with the RUC. And so Peter has a particularly interesting perspective on events, but is recognised for his role in helping to heal society in the mm. North today. Okay, and some of the things he talked about, he talked about the need to build community capacity and I suppose a, a willingness to learn from others, and those others may not even be from here. Absolutely, and uh, he brings an interesting perspective because uh, this is something that several people who we've interviewed have spoken about, you know, looking to the citizens' assemblies in the South, which mm. have actually achieved a lot in terms of changing the social narrative within the Republic around uh, abortion and on same-sex marriage. But Peter's talking about citizens' assemblies in a different way because he's suggesting that perhaps we should have them to look at micro-issues, you know, individual estate issues uh, or perhaps around uh, both sides of an interface wall. So you could actually perhaps have citizens' assemblies to deal with the very localised problems. And probably, you know, it's worth saying, although Peter didn't say that, that given we've got this political impasse where, you know, for 21 years after the Good Friday Agreement, we still don't have a government. For more than two years, we haven't had a government. I mean, given we have that void, how are we going to take decisions? And perhaps, you know, citizens' assemblies are one of the ways in which we can empower people to take decisions for themselves. Yeah, it's one of the things I think that Peter mentions is that the public should be trusted to deal with the issues and that nothing should be off the table there. There should be no limit to that. I think that is absolutely right, isn't it? That, uh, you know, in a sense, we've got a society where perhaps we're too afraid to actually deal with the big issues, but actually mm. the big issues are the ones, obviously, the ones that they have to be dealt with. Yeah, and... Peter talked about rights and I suppose it's seeing those things, seeing rights as rights for all and approaching it in that really generous point of view. Absolutely. And uh, as we said with the other interviewees, uh, Peter's someone that I've spoken to on a number of occasions. And this is one of his regular themes that the Mm. important rights aren't the ones we argue for ourselves. They're the rights that we argue for other people. So he's saying specifically, DUP, what rights that Republicans want will you argue for? And saying to Sinn Féin, what rights that unionists want will you argue for? And actually, perhaps that way we can create a, a fairer society if we all recognise our responsibility for the whole of our society. OK. Uh, Peter also touches on the Good Friday Agreement and the, the process that we went through there and the, the political parties and their relationships. Yeah, and it, really that's talking about the power relationships. What mm. he's saying is that the British government and the US special envoys they imposed the framework and that the local parties conceded to those frameworks. But actually, they didn't concede to each other. 
And in a sense, that's the weakness of having a broker come in to negotiate uh, the, the settlement. Yeah. You're not taking responsibility. And I think that's what Peter's saying, that the organisations we have here aren't taking responsibility either necessarily for the solution, but also they're not directly conceding to each other what needs to be conceded. Yeah, and, and he talked about the past and talked about the stories coming from the conflict. And he talked about the fact that there's many different stories and each of them is as valid. That's the problem, in a sense, with talking about us having two communities here. Yeah. You know, it, it ignores the personal story. It ignores the fact there's lots of differences within those communities. Or even as, you know, an American politician here said the other day, well, there are two traditions, but one community. Yeah. In fact, you could say there's more than two traditions because we have very many Multiple. people from many other countries that now live today in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And we don't perhaps hear enough about the various perspectives, which after all is one of the purposes of this series of interviews. Yeah. OK, well, let's hear the interview with Peter and I. Thank you very much, Peter Sheridan, Chief Executive of Corporation Ireland. Um, Peter, let's start. How, in your view, do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? I suppose on the one hand, there, there, there are a lot of good organisations who have come through the conflict and a lot of good community groups uh, uh, that are on the ground. But it always strikes me that um, if you take the events in Derry last year around the 11th of July on the rioting, and then there are 500 people decide to march to stop it happening. Uh, the recent murder of Ian Ogle in East Belfast, and um, within days there are 2,000 people who are, you know, out passionately um, against that type of activity in it. So how do we get round what's maybe the existing groups involve new people and new ideas? And, and I think there are models out there, uh, and it's some of the work that I'm looking at in relation to uh, building community capacity as part of the Fresh Start Agreement. Um, and one of the ideas that is that idea that happened in some ways in the Republic of Ireland around the abortion debate, uh, citizens assembly type ideas it's it works in Canada it works in Iceland there are examples all around the world so the the idea being that you 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 uh, pick an area and pick a problem whatever that is uh, you randomly select a group of people uh, from the electoral register um, and that could be depending on the size of the problem it could be 30 40 50 60 people in it um, and you can determine the size of the area, so it could be an area the size of the Craigan Estate or, or um, the West Bank of the Foyle, so you can determine the size of the area and determine the size of the group. You identify a particular problem, uh, so let's take as an example that it may be an area that how do we stop young people joining paramilitarism in Area X. So you randomly select 30, 40, 50 people, maybe not 100 people depending on the size of it, and, and you bring an expert opinion to them, first of all, where they get the views from experts who say, well, in, for example, in Colombia, here's how they went about stopping young people joining groups. In Spain, this is how they stopped young people joining, and so on. And, they give them, and the opportunity for that randomly select group to ask the expert questions. And, but then they need to, time to deliberate and to debate internally among themselves, properly facilitated, uh, but also... Um, properly written up by somebody and that could be over a period of two weekends, two days each weekend uh, where that group of 50 would really engage in a conversation and they'd be remunerated 
for being present. So it's not a case of you know, select people and expect them to give up their time. If we value people's time and we value people from the civic society's time, then we should remunerate them for it. Um, once the conclusions of that report are agreed, then it goes into uh, hopefully change policy in the executive. And this will be the question as to where uh, the policymakers see it fitting and how they, they take it on board. Then that group's dissolved. And then you start with a new problem and a brand new group, randomly selected. Um, and, it, and, and that way you exclude nobody because it could include political parties. It can include existing groups and existing organisations. It could include people who are in illegal organisations. Um, so you, you, but what you, do, what you do get is you reach that 2,000 people who turned out in East Belfast recently. You reach the 500 people who turned up in Derry who desperately want to do something, want to make change, but are, are finding it difficult as to how they make that change. Now, Citizens Assembly worked perfectly, brilliantly in dealing with abortion in the South. Gordon Brown has suggested it could have worked in terms of Brexit. The question is, what type of subjects are best dealt with by Citizens Assemblies? Well, it can be social issues, because you can see the struggle in, in, in politics here around the movement of social issues. It can be socialist, but because the, the very challenging issues of flags. I mean, there, I, I don't think there are any problems that are off limits that the public could not have a view on, and in fact, an important um, viewpoint of how things can be resolved, particularly in their area, because you're, you, we're talking about the very areas uh, where you, you expect things to be done to them. Actually, some of the best thinking and ideas comes from people who live in a community, live on the ground. In, in, a, in a previous job when I was in the police, I used to say if I wanted to know how the front gate operated um, in terms of electronic, the best person goes to see the guy who operated the front gate. Um, and it's the same way, the best person to sometimes decide how you might change things in a particular community are the very people who live in that community. If it's very closely, locally, geographically placed, how do you persuade councils that their role is not going to be usurped? Well, so this, this has to involve statutory agencies and, and to some extent all of the statutory agencies. So it could be an issue about education, it could be an issue about health, but they have to engage in it. And, and it is that you know disconnect that happens between statutory agencies and people on the ground because there's, apart from uh, existing groups and organisations, it doesn't necessarily get to all of the individuals who may have some of the best thinking and, the, the, you know, again, in, in a previous word when I was in the piece, some of the best ideas and thinking come out of the officers who are on the ground instead of the people at the very top. But it will require um, a thorough and genuine engagement by statutory agencies, whether that's local councils, but they shouldn't see it as a threat. To them. This is meant to help and support to, to improve a way of life for people in particular communities. Um, and, of course, it would be a challenge to statutory agencies. And perhaps that answer moves towards the answer to my second question as well, Peter, which is how do we move towards a genuinely shared and integrated society? Um, <clears throat> some of that is, is top-down and some of it is bottom-up in it. I think one of the frustrations that I have is that our political system here is such that uh, even when they're in, in a shared executive, they, they all champion their own side's rights. So, so they set about, it's my right to, to, to parade, it's my right to protest, you know, it's, and, and what we don't do is look at the other person's rights. And, and good rights 
and I hear people consistently talking about rights, good rights when you seek to protect your neighbour's rights, not just your own rights. Um, so my view on it is I would want to know in, in political parties. So let's take uh, if it was the DUP and Sinn Féin, the executive again. So I would want to, to know from the DUP, what is it you're going to do that protects the Catholic tradition, the nationalist tradition, the republican traditions, its cultures and its identity? And in Sinn Féin, what is it you're going to do that protects the Protestant Unionist loyalist traditions, their culture and their identity? And, and until we get people talking about those uh, how they're going to protect their neighbours' rights in it. I, I've always had the view that one of the weaknesses of the Good Friday Agreement was that we managed to get all of the political parties in Northern Ireland to concede to the British government, to Tony Blair. We managed to get them all to concede to the Irish government, to Bertie Ahern, and we managed to get them all to concede to the American government, to Bill Clinton, during the uh, Good Friday Agreement. But what they didn't do was concede to each other. And, and they got into the executive and we lost those three people at the one time, and, and the new political new, uh, party, our prime ministers and Taoiseachs in, didn't own the baby the same as, and didn't adopt it to the same extent as the, the people who were there, the architecture of it. So then our local parties got in and they simply sat and, and fought for their own rights. And until we mature, until political parties start to mature, to sit down and say, what would I legislate that would help protect that Catholic nationalist Republican identity? What would I legislate that would help protect the Protestant traditions, its culture and identity? And that includes what would they legislate to protect their rights to parades and, and, and loyal orders and so on, that might be um, completely counterculture to somebody's viewpoint in it. But that's where we'd have to get to. Those are wonderful words, but how do you translate the words and sentiments into practical action? I mean, how would you persuade people in Sinn Féin to do things that protect the interests of loyalists? And how would you persuade members of DUP to do things that protect so, the interests so of Republicans? So let's take two examples. So the obvious answer is, though, Irish language, which is now one of the, 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 the red lines in this. So under, if you understand the Catholic nationalist uh, Republican tradition, the Irish language is an important part of that identity and culture. So if you're on the other side of the fence, and maybe you don't have the same understanding, but if you want to protect those rights of, of your neighbour, then you'd set about legislating. What is it we could legislate that would protect to their satisfaction, their rights, their identity and their culture? And similarly, the whole issue of loyal order parades and areas that can't march in and so on are a big issue for loyalist um, and unionist uh, communities. What is it that Sinn Féin would legislate that might take them out of their own comfort zone, but they would recognise that they are setting about to protect the rights of their Protestant neighbour, even though it's not in a way that they might necessarily want. So it, it is the practical application of it. It's not about words. I would want to know what is it you're going to do in government that protects those rights and how would you legislate for them. And, 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 and not, you know, people are very good here at... Um, changing the conversation back to their rights again. So are you suggesting the next round of negotiations, assuming there are next rounds of negotiations, would involve the DUP putting forward what it believes it could agree to that would satisfy Republican demands and would involve Sinn Féin putting forward what it believes would satisfy concerns within loyalist communities? Yeah, when the, the Secretary of State 
started here and then the talks were starting a few weeks later. I, I had said to her, start off the conversation by saying, I know what you stand for in Sinn Féin and what you want. I know what you want in the DUP, what you stand for. But I want to know what you're going to do to protect the other community. And it, literally, that's where you change the conversation to. Um, and, and, you know, the first of that is getting political parties to state the case to the other person's satisfaction. So getting people in Sinn Féin to state the case as, as they understand it um, for the issues that are important to um, unionism and loyalism. But getting them to state it in a way that, to, to the satisfaction of unionism and loyalism. So then you get to the point where they, you at least know that they understand where you come from. And similarly then getting the DUP to state the uh, nationalist Republican case to their satisfaction. Because that addresses one of the big political weaknesses we have in Northern Ireland, which is the fact that even if the leadership of a political party can sell a concession, it can't necessarily speak for its own hardest line supporters. Yeah. So does your suggestion deal with that concern? Well, this is how you start to condition people's mindsets to think differently. And we, despite the fact that we're 20 years after the Good Friday Group, are still an immature political society here. We still... Uh, have very my, micro thinking in terms of um, how a government should work and the government should be there to protect all of the people's rights. And maybe it's not a surprise that coming out of conflict where people um, lived like enemies, they now have to learn to live together like citizens, that we haven't matured to a place yet that we genuinely want to understand how you protect your, your neighbour's rights to that extent. And of course one of the other big issues, challenges, is how we deal with the past, how we deal with the legacy, and, and how do you think we can deal with it in a way that takes us forward rather than takes us back, and, and, and how do we achieve reconciliation as part of that? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, it has to be an honesty, and that honesty is uh, we will never do justice to the scale of the injustice on any side here. You know, if I take the simplest of, um, uh, of issues, so somebody going to put a bomb under my car 30 years ago. Is justice for me the person who's putting the bomb under the car? Is justice for me the person who made the bomb? Is justice for me the person who hijacked the car, took the house over? Or is it the person at the very top of the tree who authorised it? Or indeed is it the person, is justice for me the person who was sitting in uh, the chapel on a Sunday instead of saying their prayers was uh, taking notes and passing information on about my movements? And, and the reality is you're never going to get to all of those. Even if you got to one of them, my experience in the court is that once uh, victims hear the full story, they will naturally, human nature is they want to know, well, who was it was in the chapel? And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see the colour of their eyes and all of this. And so I think we politicians have to be clear to um, everybody out there. We are not going to reach a stage of utopia where this will be justice for everybody in, in every case and every aspect of it. Um, I have said it in, in previous discussions with um, people like Martin McGuinness and myself that I was willing to accept that um, he had a story for the last 30, 35 years. I wasn't going to say that I agreed with it or agreed with all aspects of it or that I accepted it in its totality. But I was willing to accept it was his story, on one condition, that he accepted that I had an understanding of the last 35 years. And likewise, he didn't have to agree with it 
agree with all the sentiments or accept it was all right. But what he would do is accept that it was my story. And I think once you can get people to think in that way, then you have the possibility of being able to look to the future. Um, because the, the way we are doing it now, that we're going back over 40 years trying to decide who was right and who's wrong in every instance, and we will still not agree. People will still have a viewpoint of what they saw at a particular time. And a lot of people's um, knowledge has now been um, coloured by what they've read, what they've seen, you know, since the event. I mean, I, I have examples in my last role where, you know, people thought they'd saw something particular, but actually it turned out as it was something they read in more recent years. And, and so you, what, people, what you do is you, you tell your story and then when you tell it again, you add in something else you've learned and, and you continue to get to that stage. So uh, I, I just think we are approaching this in the, the, in the way we, we will never resolve it and, and it will continue to be an ongoing sore. But also the words we use are incredibly important because you're talking about justice and I've interviewed a range of political leaders in recent months and some refer to justice meaning criminal sanction on those who committed actions. Others talk about justice meaning fairness in society today. So although you might have a commonality around the words, you have a difference in their meaning. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I sat on a case, in a, um, in a legacy case, where um, an individual police officer had been shot dead. Um, uh, he was 23 years of age and his, his wife was in hospital. Um, and he, uh, she got remarried, but 35 years later, they discover um, a piece of forensic evidence that actually leads to the person being brought to court. What happened in the court case, um, the individual was convicted, but on the Good Friday Agreement, the maximum they get is two years in jail. So the first question, how does that feel in terms of justice? But worse than that, she learned things in the court um, that she had learned for the first time. So to the extent that she understood her husband had died right away, turns out he was alive for a number of minutes and he called her name during that last four or five minutes of his life. That's the first time she learned that. What I saw was we just re-traumatised the individual in it. And, and the notion that, that because that person was in court and, and all of the complexity for his family as well in it, I don't think we did justice anywhere in, in the wider sense of what we mean by justice in it. And, uh, I, I fear that, that that narrow view of justice of being somebody being in court convicted and going to jail is not going to deliver what we think is justice in this. And that is an incredibly important challenge, isn't it? That how we have the conversations in ways that don't re-traumatise, don't create a new conflict, and not necessarily physical conflict, but conflict in terms of creating tensions in the way we've already seen the tensions rise over Brexit. So how do we have the future constitutional conversation without increasing tensions? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is to, is to not do what we're doing now at the minute, which is saying we have to have a border poll. You know, the border poll now to me is a bit like what people did in Brexit. Let's have a border poll, decide yes or no, and then we'll decide what it looks like. You know, we have not had the conversation with people in court to say, you know, what might this mean for the Irish flag? What might this mean for the Irish national anthem? Never mind all of the other arrangements in terms of, you know, how do you end up in a policing environment, a health environment, an education environment? 
you know, the notion that you, you have this simplistic um, position where you, where you make a quick decision on something, uh, you make a quick decision on, a, on something as complex as that, and then decide, now we'll, we'll fix it all together. You know, is it the view that in that quick decision that we, uh, the result is we simply vote on, if the decision was we're uh, moving to United Ireland, and say that's what happens in the border poll, that we simply vote on 750,000 Protestants and that they, we expect them to stand for the national anthem and the Irish flag. Is that the simplicity of all of this? Uh, and I, I genuinely think that you know, a conversation about a border poll, this is the absolutely wrong time. If you want to convince people that, that that's where we should go, then you need to, you know, let's tell everybody what it looks like. Let's thrash out those details. And if that takes five years, it takes 10 years, so be it. Um, we, but we need, it's absolutely um, um, important to have that debate and that conversation, but to, to test out all of those things now and not simply a yes or no vote and then we'll decide how we get on with it. Peter Sheridan, thanks very much indeed. Okay, Peter Sheridan there. So, Paul, anything else that you're taking from the, the conversation that you had with Peter? Yeah, I mean, Peter did talk very touchingly about the issues around legacy and about the widow who learnt more uh, about her late husband's death than she knew before as mm. a result of a court case and the prosecution. And again, this is something that other people have touched on as well, that you know we need to think about what we want in terms of the legacy and how we deal with the legacy. And different people are looking for different things. And the word justice means very different things to different people. And we yeah. need to be perhaps very sensitive about how we deal with some of the court cases, uh, where there are court cases that, that, that come out of the historical inquiries. Okay, and, and he also talked about Brexit and taking taking the learning there when it comes to further bigger conversations, such as a United Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I think Brexit has shown us very clearly what happens if you have a referendum without thinking what the outcome <laughs> means. And, uh, you know, similarly... Um, when we have, and it was inevitable there will be a, a border poll at some point, when we have that border poll, we need to have different opinions heard and a clear explanation of what a united Ireland would mean. Mm. And that perhaps even means, you know, what the name is. Okay, okay. Well, that's it for this, our ninth episode of the Forward Together podcast. Thanks to Peter for taking the time uh, to meet with us. Keep an eye out for future podcast episodes through the Hollywell Trust website and sluggerotool.com and you can also get this podcast wherever you get your own podcasts so thanks for listening The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme